The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome everyone in the room uh, who's joined us in person and later we're going to start the live stream to Facebook but this session we're going to record so you'll be able to watch it back again afterwards or uh, send it on to interested parties. I'm Eve Patton, I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and uh, those of you who haven't been here before, the Hub is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities um, so I'm, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the building but also to welcome you to what I hope will be in some ways a, a pioneering discussion on cultural value and what it means in Ireland and what it means for policy and we're linking this event to our ongoing policy initiative in the Tr Trinity Longham Hub. Um, I don't think it'll be an easy conversation if uh, culture, the word culture is notoriously difficult to define then I think uh, cultural value is, is something of a, a treacherous ice field that we're going to try to cross. I'm reminded uh, of our own poet Patrick Kavanagh's complaint back in the bleak island of the 1950s. Culture is always something that was, something pedants can measure. Um, well, the landscape's a bit less bleak in 2022 than it was in the 1950s, uh, but if we are the latter-day pedants with our measuring tapes, how do we effectively value and account for culture in Ireland? And how do we make connections, useful connections, between that process of auditing or accounting and the workings of cultural policy and cultural resourcing? Uh, Pat Cook, who joins us today and you've heard from already, um, has observed in his recent very useful book on the politics and polemics of culture in Ireland that this process of measurement has to go beyond the so-called grey literature of official documents and official charts uh, and actually engage with the broad expanse of public discourse, actually go into the public sphere where culture and cultural, cultural debate are happening. Uh, so how is that pathway to the public sphere to be kept open? Um, and I, I think I'll acknowledge at this point, and I, I know on behalf of all of you, um, that uh, the liberty we have today in being able to ask such questions um, is uh, in relief against the very stark landscape of human and cultural trauma elsewhere in the world, and particularly, of course, in Ukraine, where any such debate has been closed down. Um, so to address the subject of cultural value, we're in the company today of several professionals and experts in the field, and I'm really pleased that we're joined by the Leeds uh, Centre for Cultural Value, and you're going to be hearing from them shortly, and I want to thank Stephen Hadley, who has brokered this connection uh, with the, the Leeds team. Uh, we'll also be hearing from various Trinity colleagues, from lots of people from our partner universities. I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome some of you already to the discussion. Uh, we have invited speakers joining us at points throughout the day from the Arts Council, from the National Concert Hall, from the National Museum of Ireland and other institutions and public bodies. Um, so uh, we have, I think, a very 
representative group of people beginning uh, this discussion for us. But to set the opening parameters for this conversation, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Trinity Long Room Hub, virtually, Professor Geoffrey Crossick. And uh, uh, Jeff is the Distinguished Professor of the Humanities in the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. He is uh, a very eminent social historian, and he's also former chair of the Trinity Long Room Hub's Institute Board. Uh, but in addition, he is uh, director of the Arts Humanities Research Council UK Cultural Value Project, which has already uh, issued its reports, um, project reports, initially, I think, in 2016, and then again, 2018, with updated material. Uh, very, very useful report and findings, which I think open some of the discussion that we want to have today. So I'm going to hand over now to Professor Geoffrey Crossick and welcome you, Jeff. Thank uh, you so much, Eve, um, for those words and for the welcome. And it's, I'm delighted to be back at the Trinity Long Room Hub, if only virtually. <clears throat> for personal reasons, I can't join you for what should be a fascinating day. But I'm proud to have been involved with the Hub's growth for some eight years. Um, until a couple of years ago. Um, it's not only a major force for arts and humanities research at Trinity and in Ireland, but the hub has become a significant part of international networks of institutes of advanced study and set, also set an innovative example of how to engage research with wider audiences, such as through its striking behind the headlines events that I commend to everyone. It's also great to uh, see this symposium devoted to cultural value, cultural policy and evidence. I say evidence, even though measure is in the symposium's title, and I'll return to that issue uh, and raise the, raise the question of how we can become unpedantic, uh, to follow up on what you said, Eve. The symposium's theme is an area of growing debate and activity. The questions you're exploring have, of course, been with us for a long time, and I wouldn't claim that the AHRC's Cultural Value Project, uh, to which you referred, Eve, um, which I led, transformed the field. In many ways, it picked up and focused ideas and concerns that were already in the air. But I do think that we played through the project a role in realigning, repositioning some of the debates. And the international interest, about which I'll have more to say in a moment, suggests that they may, that may well be the case. I said we because the project was the work of myself and Patrizia Kaczynska, its superb researcher and joint author with me of our report, Understanding the Value of Arts and Culture. It was also the work of the many researchers whose projects we funded or who debated together and with us. And as it happens, the first public lecture on the report after its launch was in Dublin, when I was asked to give the Trinity Annual Humanities Lecture in May 2016, the report came out in April of that year. Not long before my report, as if to, um, before my lecture, as if to ensure a good audience, the Irish government had announced plans to abolish a Ministry of Culture. And this ensured a huge audience from well beyond the university and also a very heightened atmosphere. I was even interviewed by Fionn Davenport for RTE, RTE One's Inside Culture Programme um, a couple of days before um, I spoke. Now, the Cultural Value Project came from the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council decision to make a sustained investment in this area. And I took the project on, insisting that it was not about advocacy for public funding. 
but it had to be a research project, evaluating the research and the quality of evidence. I also insisted that it tackle all arts and culture, not just publicly funded. And that emphasis on the breadth of cultural engagement was one of its innovative starting points. Reports and debate on the value of arts and culture had long focused on publicly funded culture because it was directly visible in national budgets and therefore vulnerable. Yet publicly funded is only a small proportion of people's cultural engagements and cultural experiences. For all people, most of the time, commercial provision is much larger and just as large is what we've come to call everyday culture. The way people make textiles, play in bands, do amateur drama, singing choirs, make videos on their phones and so on. We must, we argued, and I still believe this to be very much the case, we must understand the value of all arts and culture before we can answer the question of why some of it should receive public subsidy. The breadth of scope was an important dimension of the report, but it had far less research to draw on. We funded some good work on commercial or everyday culture. For example, um, projects on fandom, on amateur theater, on improvisatory dance groups for the elderly, on electronic music networks, on user-generated content sites, and so on. But this breadth of experience still doesn't have enough priority in the research that's coming out. Let me highlight just three themes of our work which seem to have resonated particularly with audiences um, and with those with, with whom we've discussed them. The first is why we, why we want to know about cultural value. The second is the importance of understanding individual experience. And the third is to challenge the hierarchy of method. The first then is the whole question of why we're interested in the value of arts and culture. When I started speaking around the world on the report and its themes, where the background in UK debates and assumptions was in effect irrelevant, in every talk, my opening question about the value of arts and culture was this, who wants to know and why? The value of culture is not an objective challenge, where if we work hard enough, we'll find the right methods and the right narrative. It is situated in a context and dependent on who is asking the question and why. In many countries, the answer to the question, who wants to know and why, is governments to know the outcome of their spending and those seeking to persuade government to increase or maintain that spending. The result has been an instrumental case for the arts. An alternative approach, one that begins with what arts and culture can irreducibly do, is rarely taken. But there are surely three reasons for wanting to know the value of culture, not just one. There is research, mostly carried out by academics, to better understand the phenomenon. There is evaluation, carried out by cultural organisations as evidence for their funders. And there is reflective practice, with arts practitioners and organisations looking critically at what they've done in order to improve their practice and to achieve their objectives. It may seem wrong at a symposium on cultural policy to say, don't fixate on funders, but we might actually make better and more progress with funders if we focus more broadly on questions of value. Another theme of the report that has resonated is the centrality of individual experience. Patricia and I decided at an early stage that this would be a key dimension of the project. Because it had been neglected, other than by those proclaiming the intrinsic value of culture, an intrinsic value that is, in my mind, more a rhetorical assertion than an analytical concept. 
What happens when we visit a museum, make a quilt, watch a play, read a novel, attend a music festival, join a community arts event, play an online video game? Personal experience as an individual or in a social setting drives much cultural value, and its neglect has weakened our understanding of the difference that culture makes. This individual experience, this emphasis on individual experience, underlined um, underpinned a key early chapter of the report, a chapter that we call the reflective individual. Culture's role in helping shape people with an ability to reflect on their own lives, on the lives and value of others, and on the diversity of human experience. This is a theme that has captured attention, but not necessarily been extensively researched, let alone used in policy discussion. It has become ever more relevant since the report was published in 2016. In these polarized political times where nuance is lost, we need to celebrate the power of culture to create and encourage reflective individuals. At a time where bonding social capital everywhere seems to take priority over bridging social capital. I think the chapter on the reflective individual was one of the most important in the report. The other that I want to highlight is the final chapter on methodologies and evaluation. It's a chapter that seems to have particularly resonated and captured a mood, though I still have to keep pushing back against the assumption that numbers are best. Hence my questioning of measure rather than evaluate or evidence in the symposium's title. Our aim in the report was not to offer refined new methodologies that we highlighted many, let alone to propose a toolkit of the kind that keeps proliferating. We're back with my who wants to know and why question about the value of culture. We cannot decide on methodologies until we know why and of what we want evidence. Above all, in the report and in all my talks since, I've challenged the hierarchy of methods where randomized controlled trials are the gold standard with experimental and quasi-experimental methods ranged below them all the way down to qualitative methods deemed to be at the bottom. In my view, we need to recognize both the value and the limitations of quantitative and qualitative methods. Quantitative methods can be used rigorously and they can be used badly. And the same is true of qualitative methods. The issue is the character of the knowledge we're seeking and the rigor with which we obtain it. Making measurable indicators the starting point leads us down many a false path. False paths such as um, evaluating art in prisons by reoffending rates, when, when desistance theory tells us to look elsewhere to find the difference it makes. Jeff, I'm just going to stop you. We've unfortunately, our system is just, just bear with me for one moment. Jeff, if you'd like to just speak again and we'll see if you're coming in. Can I speak again? Can you hear me now? Yeah, and I think we just lost you for maybe if you go back one or two lines. Well, Thank I'm you. I'm back. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I can start the whole thing again if you really want. <clears throat> um, we need to recognize the value and limitations of both quantitative and qualitative methods. Quantitative methods can be used rigorously and they can be used badly. And the same is true of qualitative methods. The issue is the character of the knowledge we're seeking and the rigor with which we obtain it. 
Making measurable indicators the starting point leads us down many a false path. Thus, art in prisons has been evaluated by reoffending rates. When desistance theory, the dominant theory in criminology now, tells us to look elsewhere to find the difference it makes. Or effects on the economy are captured through economic impact case studies, when we should instead be looking at patterns of innovation, spillovers, and so on. And I think above all that multi-criteria evaluation methods offer the richest approach, including taking multi-criteria approaches and then refusing to aggregate them, aggregate the different criteria in a way that is commonly done by using financial proxies for those that are qualitative, as it's done in the otherwise helpful social return on investment approach. Let's capture the value across a range of relevant criteria, keep them apart, present them separately, and then exercise our judgment when looking across the results. But human judgment seems to have been eliminated from evaluation. Now, all of this is a far cry from economic impact case studies that dominate much of the evidence about the value of culture. More importantly, perhaps, we didn't center our approach on the economic idea of cultural value as developed by David Throsby and others, not because it wasn't interesting, and not because I didn't have some very good conversations with David, then and since, but because it tied us into mainstream debates within economics. Let me stress that these debates are not about the economy, let alone about economic impact, in spite of the misunderstanding by many in the cultural sector that that is what economists are primarily interested in. But the debates do center on the methods and concepts of mainstream welfare economics. Yet even if we don't embrace the economists' debates over cultural value, we should recognize that economic analysis has much to say to help us. If we turn away entirely from economics, we lose relevant approaches to finding value, such as stated and revealed preference methods or well-being valuation methods. Both of these are methods where real investment and innovation is going on. Indeed, our cultural value project commissioned research in this area. And England's Department of Culture, Media and Sport has launched a big long-term project on culture and heritage capital, on whose advisory board I sit. In my view, we must engage with these economic approaches, their strengths and their weaknesses, insisting that the weaknesses are not about technical deficiencies, but are about narrowness of vision, as I'm saying on the advisory board for that uh, cultural and heritage capital project. Since the report was published in 2016, I've been surprised by the level of international interest. I've been invited to lecture on it in many parts of the world, whether a lecture tour in Brazil before Bolsonaro, or a week of intensive lectures and meetings in Toronto, or talks in places as diverse as Aarhus, Bloomington, Indiana, Canberra, Taipei, Banff, Bangkok, Helsinki, and of course Dublin. The report has seemed to strike a chord, and it's been translated into Czech, and a Japanese edition is appearing next month. I've come to appreciate how situations in different countries affect how people read and use the report or, or the ideas I present from it in my lectures and workshops. In Brazil, I learned how the rich vitality of popular culture, popular culture, is a central part of policy debate, unlike Europe. In Canada, I saw how artist-led demands for better ways to think about value could engage organizations, arts councils, and foundations in constructive discussion. In Denmark, I saw the vitality of arts policy in small towns across the country, 
where it was seen as fundamental to the cohesion of communities. And in Taiwan and Bangkok, I learned that creative districts were the primary driver of cultural policy, and that the relationship between cultural activity more broadly and creative industries was claimed in those policy discussions, but never analyzed. And this claim without evidence and analysis is a problem that exists in the UK and Ireland as much as in East Asia. I also met people doing great work in many of these thematic areas, one of whom some of you will know and whom I must commend, David Maggs, now based in Toronto. David Maggs and I talked a lot while he was writing his remarkable report published last year by the Metcalf Foundation in Toronto. The report is called Art and the World After This, Art and the World After This, and I really commend it to you as, as impressive and stimulating. But what about the UK? The Arts and Humanities Research Council was pleased with the work for the project, pleased with the report, pleased with its perception, and discussed with partners how to maintain momentum of, of work in this area. The most substantial outcome was the Centre for Cultural Value, set up not, I must insist, not to carry out an agenda set by the Cultural Value Project report, but rather to carve out its own approaches and its own programmes in a field we've tried in the report to enlarge and reconfigure. And you'll obviously be hearing more about the Centre from Ben and Anne in a moment. So let me finally raise a theme that I could never have predicted when the report was published. The impact of a pandemic on the way we talk about the value of art and culture. The Centre for Cultural Value has recently produced a very impressive report on the crisis created for the cultural sector by the pandemic. But I want to not talk not about that, important as that is, but to raise two very different points, both related to the Cultural Value Project and its report. The first is digital cultural experience, which obviously much has been made of during the pandemic. It's something that's been very under-researched when we wrote the report and it's still neglected. In spite of the growth of digital cultural experience over the decade before COVID-19 struck, as a transforming aspect of how culture was engaged with. Much has been made of digital cultural experience at home during the pandemic. Now, in reality, before COVID, discussion of cultural value ignored the fact that so much culture was experienced at home, in the home. Virtually all film, TV, music, literature, video games, everyday craft practice was experienced in the home or for music and literature while traveling. During COVID, have we exaggerated the novelty of consumption and practice of culture at home because we were trapped at home? And so it felt different. And also because much venue-based culture moved online. Well, what happened during the pandemic was a lot less striking than we tell ourselves, certainly in the UK. There was a real growth in streaming to watch films and TV, esports, and so on. But other forms of cultural engagement? Well, the audience agency that Anne heads has tracked this impressively. Watching plays, music, performances, museums and heritage content, festivals, and so on. And what this showed was little change in the percentage of those who were engaging digitally compared with those who were doing so before the pandemic. What was new was that those who'd engaged before were now engaging much more than they had previously. In our report, we pointed to an important growth below the radar of people engaging in active 
online creative experiences, becoming co-producers, people making music, film, animation, games, other digital content alone and with others, something my friend Pierluigi Sacco has called Culture 3.0. It doesn't seem that the number of people doing this increased during the pandemic. So by all means, let's celebrate digital access during the pandemic, but let's not exaggerate its reaching into new audiences. However, something interesting, lots of interesting things emerged, but one interesting thing was that though before the pandemic, before COVID, 98% of all film in the UK was watched at home. This is before the pandemic. 98% of all film in the UK was watched at home. But two thirds of people during the pandemic told the audience agency that what they missed was attending cinemas in person. And this points to the complex relationship between physical and digital access to culture. The physical in many areas defines the art form and the social framework within which the digital is experienced. The other aspect of culture in the pandemic that I want to highlight is how we talk about value. In particular, the role of culture in urban improvement and the individualizable benefits through the health and well-being agenda. Many of the claims for the value of arts and culture to society and the economy revolve around their role in revitalizing urban space and urban, uh, urban economies. This often involves substantial investment in cultural institutions and cultural districts to be paid off in regeneration of the district through the attraction of, uh, attraction of spending, especially by national and international tourists. These claims to value were always problematic because of their wider social impact which was in many cases damaging. But I want to highlight something else. Urban regeneration was underpinned by a business model for cultural institutions, which looks particularly vulnerable now in the UK, where public funding is a much smaller percentage of income of nonprofit galleries, museums, concert halls, and theatres than in much of the rest of Europe. That business model requires visitor footfall and associated commercial income, which both collapsed in the pandemic and which won't substantially recover soon. This will create serious problems for many large institutions, but it might provide the opportunity for a different vision of culture and urban regeneration, one that has been strengthened during the pandemic. It's a vision more rooted in local communities and local interactions, such as that intensively researched before the pandemic over the last decade by the social impact of the arts project in the University of Pennsylvania whose findings point to a more balanced and organic path to regeneration. The kind of community engagement that has flourished in the pandemic might fit better with this vision. Small scale community initiatives have, in, have appeared in spite of all the difficulties, often with larger institutions working with more agile, smaller ones in new ways. An example is the Salford Culture and Place Partnership, which has seen cultural and non-cultural organizations and businesses coming together in new ways, able to form new alliances for new activities during the pandemic and at a very local level. We need to see how these kinds of initiatives sparked by the pandemic can survive, flex and adapt in, in future years. And I'll close with the second aspect of culture that I want to raise, and that is health and well-being. 
As we said in our cultural value project report, a worrying feature of the cultural sector, certainly in the UK, is the tendency to home in on what it believes the government of the day wants to hear. Thus, economic impact or urban regeneration, or more recently, health benefits. The cultural world proclaims that mental health benefits of cultural activity at home in the pandemic was enormously important. Um, and that is true. But it also claims that that shows why art and culture matter more broadly. My worry is that we'll continue talking in this way this year and the next and the year after. The discourse was building before the pandemic about individual health improvement. For example, the rise of social prescribing initiatives in England. A focus on health and well-being of individuals is increasingly seen as the key benefit. Now, I wouldn't deny the importance of all of this for mental health and for well-being, though I might ask for more evidence for some of the claims being made about its impact on the pandemic. But the pandemic may have accelerated the emphasis on health benefits to the individual, which may be displacing the more complex other benefits associated with cultural engagement, benefits that are not just for the individual, important as those are, but also for society as a whole. There's a bandwagon rolling, and it may not take us to an expansive enough place. The pandemic has narrowed our lives and our experiences, but as it slowly lifts, we must enlarge our perspective on the value of culture, including a perspective that builds on the communal and civic solidarities we've seen over the last two years. I mean, arts and culture have such an important part to play. Well, that's enough from me. Let me conclude by offering my good wishes for today's symposium. I do, do wish I could have been with you at Trinity. It's always a pleasure to be in Dublin and to be at the Hub, but above all, because you've got a great programme that I'd like to hear from. Thanks, Eve, for asking me to make some opening remarks, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my thanks to Jeff for giving us, I think, some of the absolutely appropriate prompts that uh, we need for the conversation we want to have today and into the future, including that prompt about digital culture and, and uh, the landscape for online culture uh, that we're addressing in the wake of the pandemic. Um, it's frustrating, obviously, that Jeff isn't here with us because we could pick his brains a bit more on this, but he has promised that if we uh, develop this um, topic at a, a future symposium, perhaps in the autumn, he'll be able to join us in person and we can um, bring him into discussion uh, more fully then. So um, I'm very grateful to him for opening our conversation today. Um, we're going to move on, though, to pick up... The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.